Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. It is such a joy and a privilege for us to host you and also to thank you and to thank God for you and to pray for you. It has been an exciting time building up to this day together. I'll be honest, it felt like it would never come. <laughs> and here it is at long last. I have been asked to speak about mentoring, uh, which is obviously the way in which discipleship takes place, drawing from a familiar metaphor that we have used in the business world and education and that sort of thing. But I think we ought to just take a step back and situate ourselves by way of reminder that all of this is really at the heart of the church. All of this is really the new evangelization, taking from theory and putting into practice and so it doesn't just settle down to become ecclesiastical jargon, as it is still for many people, the new evangelization. And this is something that has been going on through the work of the Holy Spirit in your lives and in many other hearts for the last half a century or really more since the conclusion of Vatican II, which emphasized evangelization in an unprecedented way, more than 200 references in the 16 documents to Vatican II. Then, of course, Pope Paul VI, Evangelii Nunciandi 41, as almost all of you have probably committed to memory, that modern people listen more willingly to what? Teachers? No, witnesses. And if they listen to teachers, it's because they're bearing witness to this truth of Jesus that we have experienced. And so this is a big thing. This is the thing right now. And the new evangelization has been carefully laid out by Pope St. John Paul II, the torch was passed to Benedict, and now Pope Francis has taken it to a new level. And I'm thinking especially of Evangelii Gaudium, the joy of the gospel. It isn't just enough to bear witness as opposed to a merely didactic approach. You've really got to share the joy of the gospel. The joy of the Lord is our strength. To enjoy the faith is how we transmit it. But if you add it up, what is it? Witness plus joy really equals friendship. Friendship is what this is about, more than just a kind of teacher-student relation, more than even a master-disciple relation. It really is a kind of shared fraternity that we have together in Jesus Christ's own sonship. Now, Jesus said to his disciples in the upper room, as you recall in the farewell discourse, while instituting the Eucharist, he said, I no longer call you servants because the servant doesn't know what the master is up to, right? I now call you friends. And we're so familiar with that, we ought to kind of step back and look at how amazing that is. You know, friendship with God is something that in philosophy is considered sort of ontologically impossible, metaphysically absurd. And yet what we can't do is what exactly what God did in coming down to us. And he does this because he's a father. He does it through his son. He does it by the power of the spirit of sonship who enables us all to, to pray like Jesus, Abba, Father, in a way that not even the high priest in the Holy of Holies ever dared to address the deity. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God of our fathers. He's not our father. And yet on our lips, we have the disciples' prayer, a family prayer, our father who art in heaven. 
So this provides us the background, you know, and if you've followed anything I've ever said, you know, I can't go five minutes without using the word covenant. So there. <laughs> Take a swig. <laughs> but, you know, the covenant is what shows us what the family is all about, that it's not reducible to the physical and the biological. On the other hand, the family is what takes the covenant out of the realm of mere theory. But there's really not a pure identification between the covenant and the family. It's more of an analogy, precisely because the covenant shows us what Jesus was talking about when he said, who is my mother? Who are my brothers and sisters? Those who do the will of my father. And so what we discover in the context of growing up is that God has given us all fathers so that we can know him for who he is, but he's given us all fathers who have failed us, all fathers who have flaws. I mean, well, except for my kids. They, <laughs> no. Uh, and yet he's given us also father figures, coaches, pastors, teachers, friends, and all of them are like rungs in a ladder by which we climb and scale the, the heights of heaven to see the face of God. And along the way, we get to share this with other people. And that's what I wanted to focus on because as we move from the old covenant to the new, and we know, Augustine saying in the catechism, how the new is concealed in the old and the old is revealed in the new. Again, we've got to take that from theory to practice, and we do that precisely through friendship bearing witness, sharing the joy of the gospel, mentoring, apprenticeship, discipleship, evangelization, you know, all of the above and more. What I'd like to do, though, is just to step back in another angle and look at this in terms of my own experience, because I can think back to Jack Fitzmaier and the role that he played in my life in high school when I was finding my way out of the Allegheny County juvenile court system, and I had been ensconced in trials for almost two years, and my parents were just weary, and I was too, <laughs> weary of getting caught. But um, this guy who was studying at the University of Pittsburgh, mathematics, wasted so much time with me. And it wasn't just you know inviting me to a Bible study. It was picking me up after school, taking me out to Howard Johnson's for coffee, just letting me share with him the struggles that I was going through. So that when I heard him share from the Word of God, he had already incarnated that in our friendship. And it wasn't just, you know, a quick means to an end. It really was friendship. You know, we've stayed in touch now for the last 40-some years. He has his PhD from Harvard. He's the former dean at Claremont Divinity. He is the president of the American Academy of Religion, but he's still Jack. He's just, you know, an amazing link in a chain that reaches all the way to heaven. And then he introduced me to Art, who just opened up theology and apologetics and philosophy so that by 11th grade, I was really, you know, circling back through the Bible again, just on fire for the love of Christ and his word. And there were others too, but especially when I went off to college, it was, there was a multiplier effect, a kind of, you know, there was Terry Thomas and Reed Davis and Daryl and others, and they were older than me. They were part of what we would call sort of the Protestant version of focus. It wasn't Campus Crusade, it was called the Coalition for Christian Outreach. And they, we call it incarnational evangelization. You win the right to be heard. You don't assume it. 
And we also always heard that it's a sin to bore someone with the gospel because the gospel isn't boring. It's Jesus Christ. And so if you're winning the right to be heard and you realize it would be a sin to bore someone with the gospel, you want to find ways to put flesh and blood to it, you know? And that's what, that's what Terry did. He was one of the funniest guys, and yet he could also just enter into my struggles as a college student. And these other men, too. And so I had professors who were mentoring me. I also had these coalition leaders. Just as a footnote, you know, when Curtis Martin and I were brainstorming over how to kind of transfer what he had experienced through the Campus Crusade in Louisiana into a Catholic mode. I took him around Pittsburgh and introduced him to coalition leaders because it was much more of a discipleship, mentoring, relational model that they had than simple crusade techniques as it were. And so when we launched the Fellowship of Catholic University Students here in Steubenville before it was transplanted, this is and was the model. Uh, And it is in so many other cases too. But I also share with Curtis the fact that something happened along the way because from college into seminary, I had similar experiences with professors at seminary. I got to be a teaching assistant for one and then another as well. And I just, you know, we got, we got united, like the two become one. And it was only when I went in search of the church that I was finding in the Bible and the early fathers of the church that I began to realize I'm going to become a Catholic And so I can't wait to be mentored by Catholics. And so without going into any sort of negativity, I want to say that I entered a vacuum. Uh, I I went to a doctoral program at a Catholic university in the Pittsburgh area, and I wanted to connect with the professors like I had in college and like I had in seminary. And they were like, what do you want? Oh, God, I've got a question or two. What are they? And I was out in four minutes. And I went back and I thought, well, it takes time to build those bridges, you know, and it just didn't happen. And I ended up transferring to go to Milwaukee because I thought, well, the Jesuits know how to do this, you know. And I'm sure they do with scholastics and that sort of thing, you know, if you're in the society. Um, But there again, I I experienced this disappointment, this letdown, where I'm like, okay, I I, want to become a Catholic. And yet at the same time, I want to be mentored. I've read the books. You know, I've mastered a lot of this material. But it was the loneliest part of my spiritual journey. And I don't want to melodramatize it because, you know, I could be rather off-putting the Jesuit. Oh, no, here he comes, you know. Could have been that. I don't know. But I got that sense also from my colleagues and fellow students that they were there to basically take the classes, write the papers, do the exams, get the grades, and then move on for others to come along. And... I remembered more than 30 years ago, in entering the church, I had found some friends, and those friends of mine were sharing their faith. They were embodying it. They were enfleshing the Catholic faith. But I also remembered making the comment to Kimberly again and again that I have really missed mentors, that there was really hardly any discipleship. Uh, I had a regular confessor, and that was really beautiful, critical for me. Uh, and other things too. But, you know, I made a resolution at that point that if I ever have an opportunity to be a Catholic professor, to be whatever God wants me to be, I want to make up for lost time. I want to try to do for others what I was looking for in my own case. And so 
you know, the first three years we did some teaching. It was down in Joliet at the College of St. Francis. And I remember connecting with this freshman, you know, who was really a, a jock. He was on a tennis scholarship and he came in all excited after two weeks of the Bible. He was taking the required religion course as a history major. And he announced that he was going to add the theology major. And I'm thinking, wow, that'll make two. <laughs> um, we had a religious who was also a theology major. And uh, he got a couple of his friends within the next month or so to add a major. When he came back, I was asking him questions like, what part of the Bible do you enjoy the most, the old or the new? And he said, well, not the old. Okay, well, the new. What part of the new? You know, the Gospels or Paul's letter? Oh, not Paul. The Gospels. And I'm like, which, which one of the Gospels? You know, he said, which ones are there again? I'm like, <laughs> Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I'm looking at the face of my first cradle Catholic theology major, you know. And I invited him out for dinner, because Kimberly and the family were out of town at that point, Kimberly and the kids. And so we got to spend some time, and uh, that guy was Tim Gray. Uh, he's the founder of the Augusta Institute, and he's got his PhD in scripture, and now he's become my tutor, my teacher, and he's downright intimidating, but we're still like, you know, brothers in Christ. And, you know, for the next three years, he took these classes, but he also babysat. We had Bible studies. We went shopping together. Uh, I have stories that he would prefer me not to tell. <laughs> he has stories that he, I'd prefer him not to tell. Uh, I, I have a love for blues, blues guitar. And so one night, I, uh, I took a friend up on an invitation to go to Blues Etc. and uh, another blues bar in downtown Chicago. And I have no idea what came over me, but I asked him to come along. Well, I know what came over me because that was the kind of thing Jack did for me in high school and Terry did in college. We just wasted time together. And I just learned to love what my friend loved. And so we went and Tim has since become sort of a blues fan too, I suppose. But uh, at 2.30 a.m., we're leaving the last gig and uh, come out and our car is towed <laughs> in the pouring rain. And so we go to the only open bar uh, to make the call to the towing company. And we realize after about four or five minutes that they're all eyeing Tim up. It's a gay bar. <laughs> <laughs> and so we got back and I dropped him off at the dorm shortly after 5 a.m. Mentoring can be a mess. <laughs> But that's the way family life is, that's the way friendship is, because friendship extends the bonds of brotherhood and sisterhood. And you know, the, the, the feminine genius, as John Paul put it, was a kind of spiritual maternity. And that fruitfulness so, goes so far beyond the physical. You know, we were praying earlier this morning together for the consecrated virgins to be more dedicated. And that means being more fruitful. And not like, you know, it isn't like being fruitful, they really are. Because the life of family doesn't originate just simply with sperm and egg, but with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so there's an analogy down here in the family that is physical and biological, but it's a signpost that points us to the reality of family communion, which is this divine trinity that is our, our, our only home. And I could think, too, of, you know, Tim took these courses and the... Uh, just to use this as an, an example, he came to my office my third and final year because uh, I had asked him to come in. I had some bad news for him. I was leaving, so I wasn't going to be around. I was going to miss him my senior, you know, his senior year, my last year. And he came in, and he was like, I've got some bad news to share. And 
he told me that, uh, I, I let him share first, he said, uh, I, you, you're not teaching any classes next year that I haven't already taken, and same with Dr. Hittinger, and so I'm transferring to Franciscan University of Steubenville. Oh. <laughs> I'm like, well, the reason I called you into my office was to let you know that I wasn't gonna be around your senior year. I've accepted an offer at Franciscan University of Steubenville. <laughs> and he's like, seriously? I'm like, yeah. And he said, okay. And well, it turns out he moved in with us uh, that fall when we first arrived. And our kids already knew him like an older brother because of all of the babysitting and the Bible studies and coming over for dinner with his classmates and that sort of thing. So he became the first of between 40 and 50 guys who've lived with us in the last 27 years. And you know, we don't prefer you know, borders. We really do look forward to men who really have this passion to grow closer to Jesus and to share the life. And in the process, you know, Tim and then Ted Sree lived with us when he first came and Curtis Martin did too, and a number of other people over the years. And you know, there was a story written about a year and a half ago about the 90s and what was happening here. And I just wanna make two corrections. It's still happening. It's still happening. Maybe the names have changed, but the fruit will be just as splendid, if not more so. And the other thing that I discovered when I got here was the power in a team, the theology department. I mean, there was Alan Shrek, Regis Martin, and Mark Maravalli, and now it has just doubled, it's tripled since I was first here in 1990. And it is unique in many ways, but it's not unique in most ways, because this is the kind of thing that really can be multiplied. It can be, it can be transferred into any place, any time, by anybody, who just says from the heart, yes, you know, I want to be faithful. I want to be a faithful disciple, but I also want to be a fruitful apostle. Uh, the, be the beautiful thing about the new evangelization is what it's taught me and what it's teaching everybody else, and that is for us as Catholics, conversion is not something over and down in the past. Conversion is ongoing. Well, I thought, well, I converted when I was about 14, when I found Jesus, got out of trouble found my way into the Bible and all kinds of fellowships. But then, I don't know, I converted when I was in my late 20s, becoming a Catholic after pastoring and all of that. But once you become a Catholic, you know, you realize not only was John Paul right, but he was just simply echoing Jesus. If anyone wants to follow me, he must take up his cross every day. And that's never easy. That never starts becoming fun. And so it always calls for this opening up our hearts to the grace of conversion. And yet, Jesus doesn't expect us to do it alone. It's never a solo act. You know, he sends them out two by twos. I personally prefer the story that I heard the first time I went to Young Life, and Jack opened up the Gospel of Mark to the second chapter, where these vandals up on the roof began tearing apart the tiles so they could lower their friend, the paralytic, mm -hmm. down to Jesus. And he basically just walked us through you know, the different perspectives, you know, and I just sat there. I'd heard the story. I didn't really know the Bible much at that point. But, you know, he, 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 he first looked at the people out there who were opposed to Jesus. No one can forgive sins but God alone. You know, and then he introduced the fact that, no, this is why Jesus came. And then he also looked at the paralytic, you know, to whom Jesus says, my son, your sins are forgiven. And the man must have been sitting there thinking, that's not what I came for, you know. 
And the owner of the house is like, is that the best you could? I mean, if they're going to destroy my roof, at least raise the guy, you know, and give him back his. And he just walked through the story and made Jesus come to life. And then he made the paralytic come to life. And then he made all of the others as well. And then in the end, he basically reminded us that we're the paralytic. That our sins are what paralyze us when it comes to following Jesus. And so he has to raise us. And I've found since then that he raises us every day, not only out of bed, but sort of out of the spiritual stupor. Kimberly usually wakes up, you know, just so positive and joyful. The rest of the family is like me, you know. And I would say that wherever you are, whatever circumstances you find yourself in, whatever family relations you have or whatever spiritual kinship bonds you share, because I, I suspect that a lot of you are single, a lot of you are married, some of you are, you know, C, not A or B. But the fact is, as the catechism reminds us, nobody finds themselves without a family because the church is the family of God. And it's not just a concept. It's not just a universal thing. Mary doesn't just look out and say, you know, I've got millions of sons and daughters. God knows us each by name and she knows our hearts. And so the, the process of evangelization, discipleship, mentoring, as you know, arguably better than I do, is something that takes place on a daily basis through that kind of interpersonal contact that will often involve lesson plans, teaching, the didactic, but it's pervaded by bearing witness, which means that we have to allow ourselves to hear again and again what Jesus continually reminds me of, and that is, I want to draw close to you more than I want to use you to draw others close to me. And so I just wanted to speak to this particular occupational hazard as well, and that is professionalization. You know, it's one thing to profess the faith that God is my Father, that Jesus is the eternal Son, the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, that the Holy Spirit who overshadows the Blessed Virgin makes her the mother and the church, the bride of Christ, our mother too. But I mean, to go beyond the profession of faith, to share that, always brings us to the edge of professionalization. Burnout is the extreme form of it. But even if you're not burned out, you know that feeling of living hand to mouth where you're, you're basically only giving yourself enough time to take the bread of life that you will turn around and serve as though you're a waitress. And I believe this is the, 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 the greatest danger for us. You know, near the end of Crossing the Threshold of Hope, Pope St. John Paul points out that original sin eclipses the face of God the Father. It doesn't make us atheists so much as it replaces God the Father with the master-slave relationship, where suddenly he's our employer and we're his employees. And that's what I've experienced thousands of times. Uh, that's what I experienced when I woke up this morning. And I just, I always feel inadequate. I always feel fear whenever I have to get up and speak, even to a small seminar. And so the prospect of sharing, you know, it's like they're asking so much of me. And our Lord says, and you're asking so little of me. Okay. And it's not really you they want. It's me. So allow me to fill you. And so I just walked around the room like Jericho more than seven times this morning in prayer, praying to your mother, mine too, 
asking Our Lady, and then after finishing the rosary, realizing that was lame, so I did it again. And I wasn't intending to tell you, but I tell you, the one thing I felt so strongly was how much she loves you. And then the second round, how much she loves me. And it's like, right below us, there's a huge library, 40,000 or more volumes. I don't necessarily want to invite you down there, but it's a mess. (laughs) But I mean, it's so significant that this is above that. Because it's so important to study and to read and to continue to grow intellectually. And I don't want to in any way imply that you can afford to skimp on that. But that is not an end in itself. That's a means to an end. To be a disciple certainly means mathetes comes from Montano, and that means discipline learning. That means study. That means just because you graduated doesn't mean you cease to be a student. Now you can really study. That's why we call it commencement, right? So I don't want to encourage you to kind of, you know, take a, you know, allow that to become lackluster. Study scripture. You know, allow the Holy Spirit to write it on your heart. But don't just get it from books. Prayer, the Blessed Virgin, the saints, the angels, the guardian angels of everyone you're reaching out to and teaching. Before you even address them, pray to their guardian angels. You got one, pray to him. You know, my dear friend Mike Aquilina points this out, that, you know, our guardian angel is more intelligent than a thousand Einsteins, more powerful than 10,000 missiles, more, you know, more, more of what we need, and a better friend than the best friend we ever had growing up. He exists for one purpose, to get us to heaven, to make us holy, to help us overcome all of our, our weaknesses and bad habits. So cultivate a friendship with that guardian angel, that older sibling in the family of God, and then address those guardian angels who are there, who brought the people to you that you will then bring to Jesus. And, and don't just talk about this in a professionalized way. Allow our Lord to kind of speak that to your heart. At the same time, I want to shift and say this, that if you are married and you do have kids, and you're also in ministry, don't use ministry as an excuse for shortchanging your spouse or your children. Not that that's ever happened, but I mean, I just wanted to check it off my list. Oh, it's happened. In fact, you know, I remember being a pastor and feeling like the rope that was sort of, you know, in a tug of war. You know, on the one hand, my wife and then our newborn. On the other hand, you know, the church, you, you could just... 24-7, and you still wouldn't feel as though you had finished it all. And so I would say this, that when it comes to family life, that is first. Well, that's a cliche, and so you have to figure out a way to coordinate it. Now, one size doesn't fit all. One formula doesn't work for you as it did for me, but this was why we did what we did way back in 1990. We lived up the street, three houses up in a home, not quite this big, but large enough to have Bible studies that some of you might have attended when we had 120 people on the floor. They didn't have chairs back then. But we also began inviting guys like Tim Gray and Ted Sri and Curtis Martin and Curtis Mitch and all of these other folks to live with us. And what I, what I try to do is what St. Jose Maria speaks of as unity of life. You know, it's sort of like lining up your ducks, you know, so that you don't just feel like I'm pulled in this direction and I'm pulled in that direction. 
And I'm like, I'm an opportunist. Uh, you know, and so I, I want to figure out a way to kill two birds with one stone. I mean, leaving the birds safe, but you know the expression. And so by inviting some of my best students that I already felt a connection with to live with my family, not only gave them a glimpse of me in a way that I didn't always want, but it also gave them an opportunity to show my kids that the faith is cool. And so they became junior mentors of my own kids. More than I expected, more than I could have anticipated, they became role models and mediators because I have a German temper. It's, it's, it's subsided a bit when you get to be 60 as I'm turning this year. But, you know, I, I could see my kids at times cower before me. And then Tim and Ted and Curtis and Jade and all these other guys were so cool that, you know, I would throw the frisbee with them. We'd play football in the backyard or run down or whatever. And then when I was gone, they would do it too. And it was really kind of fun because we had, you know, Michael Barber did this back in the late 90s and Chris Cuddy. And so six kids ranging in age from, you know, 33 down to 17, all look at some of these amazing men as older brothers. And at the same time, these guys see their younger brothers. So Gable just got his masters at the AI and had both Tim and Ted and reminded Tim that he'd played Andre the Giant in <laughs> Princess Bride birthday party for him when he turned 13, you know. All these kinds of things, you know. And so creating unity of life also means inviting them to pray the family rosary and inviting them to mass if you have time for a holy hour. You know, inviting somebody along, even though it might mean adding 10 minutes to go pick them up and, you know, or drop them off or just simply to wait for them. But there's a way to coordinate, but I would say it's a kind of divine conspiracy. Because at times, you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, but not at one time. Right? But so often we feel like we've got to get it all done at once, and we can't. But what we can do is conspire with the Holy Spirit. And show, allow the Holy Spirit to show us how to coordinate the persons in our lives, family, friends, co-workers, in order to go grab a coffee, but introduce this group to that group or this person to that person. You know, and in the process, what you find is it isn't all on my shoulders. You know, it isn't just on Kimberly's either. Uh, what we found over the years, you know, uh, we have... Six kids, five boys and one girl. I always say one rose and five thorns. <laughs> and, you know, Michael and Gabriel are now, in a certain sense, going beyond dad. You know, Michael is getting a PhD in theology at Notre Dame. He's taken a full-time job at Christendom. They just had their fifth child. I was down there last weekend to spend three days with them and to see him in action. You know, I took one of my grandkids, and uh, we drove to the school. He had never seen his father teaching before. <laughs> and so we couldn't look through the glass in the door, so I went outside, and I held him up. And they looked through the window, and all of a sudden, Michael sees him, and everybody turns around, and they wave. And, wow, you know, it was so special. And I'm like, oh, yeah. And so we got to meet the students as well. And over the years, I've gotten to know a bunch of them. And it is so interesting to see the cycle continuing, the torch being passed, the excitement being radiated. 
And you know, the other thing too is my son-in-law, Ben, who's a convert who finished his doctorate at Notre Dame, Hannah's husband is teaching there. And so we went up and showed their kids, their dad, because they had never seen. Look for opportunities to kind of move the puzzle pieces, you know? We think everything has to be just so in its proper place. But so often, I think discipleship, mentoring, evangelization means allowing people to see your life, all of the moving parts, especially the messy ones. I mean, it doesn't mean sharing with them what you only share with your confessor, but it really does mean, you know, entering into the heart, entering into the home. Uh, I think of some other anecdotes too, uh, besides Michael and Gabriel and Hannah, uh, Jeremiah is our 25-year-old. He's third year at Sacred Heart Seminary studying for the Diocese of, uh, of Steubenville. And spring break, we were kind of hoping that he might come back because our spring break has just started, his is just ending. And so he said, no, I, I want to work with my classmates. I'm like, okay, it's spring break, Jer. Well, they went down to Hansville. They wanted to see Mother Angelica's Eucharistic Shrine. They wanted to see EWTN. And he was calling up and just describing what it was like, not just to meet these nuns, but to do it with his brothers, to do it with his friends, these classmates, these seminarians, these future fathers, these future priests. And it was so encouraging because I thought, you know, he could have come home and just, you know, surfed the internet for hours. He could have, you know, and just kind of reconnected with some old friends. Uh, Joseph is turning 23 this year. He is also, uh, you know, he's something else. He's a force of nature. Um, you know, he, he lived with the Jesuits for a year in Siberia, studying Russian and discerning a vocation to the Society of Jesus. And after his eight-day retreat, we were so grateful, he discerned out. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what they did before Skype, you know, besides just simply long for their faces and pined away the, the days and weeks. But uh, he has just let us know this week that he is planning to enter the seminary for the Diocese of Steubenville as well, like his older brother, you know. But the gift of friendship is what the Lord wants to impart to us, but not just as a natural virtue, like Aristotle explains, but a kind of supernatural virtue. Uh, in a certain sense, we have to really be available to each and every person that we meet and realize that there are no accidents. God has brought them into our lives. Our, our paths have crossed for a purpose, and so we've got to be open to whatever they ask. We've also got to be open to saying, no, I can't. All right, That's really important. But at the same time, I think we also ought to be open to prayerfully discerning which of those people should I draw more closely into those areas of my life that represent my primary vocation, as a husband, as a father, now as a father-in-law, and as a grandfather. And some people will have only a few, others might have 20, 30, 40, or 50 over the course of years. But this is what Jack did for me in high school. This is what Terry did for me in college. I am more grateful today for what they did back then, you know, than when Terry called me at 6 a.m. and woke me up in my dorm and said, I'm heading off to give three talks at University of Pittsburgh, Johnstown. You want to come? I'm like, what? And he said, you want to come? We'll have a blast. I'm like, I've got a test today. And he said, so is that no? I'm like, no, I'll come. <laughs> and so I blew off a test and immersed myself in this man's life more that day than I ever had in, you know, looking back on those four years. 
and I remember sitting there listening to him talk to these college students about Jesus Christ. He was evangelizing, discipling, and I watched him in action. I took notes on all of his talks. I've got to share with you on a side because uh, a year later, Terry called me and said, this church in Columbiana uh, wants me to do their retreat, but I'm, I'm booked that weekend. Would you do that for me? And I'm like, a high school retreat? I've never done that before in a parish. And so I said, yes. And when I went, I basically gave Terry's talks. I mean, the same jokes, the same one-liners and all of this because he was my mentor, you know? And they loved it. They loved it. But what I didn't see coming was that a year later, they invited Terry. <laughs> and so Friday night, the talk just bombed. All day Saturday, you know, nothing really worked. And that was a first-time experience for this guy. He's one of the most amazing speakers and funniest guys. And then by Sunday afternoon, they had a debriefing session back at the church. And Terry asked the adult team, what happened? And finally, one of them said, look, if you're going to invite Scott, you shouldn't steal all of his talks and his life. <laughs> he called me a few minutes later. Thanks a lot. You know? I mean, even the Chrissy Everett story, you're seriously, you know. But this is how it works. It's the transmission of life every bit as much as Kimberly and I have done that six times in the physical realm. It's a spiritual multiplication. It is fun. It is fulfilling. It is frustrating. Let's admit that last part. Because nothing has been more fulfilling for me than fatherhood. Nothing has been more frustrating for me than fatherhood. That's especially true here at the house. But it's also true in terms of interacting with students, because there really is a sense in which the teacher is in loco parentis, in the place of the parents. And there's so often the experience that you have with teachers that they don't just you know, take the baton from your folks, but they really do it in a way that your folks never could. And so this fulfillment on the one hand and this frustration on the other. And why is it so frustrating? Because they are so frustrating. Well, what I've discovered is this, that unity of life, moving, you know, coordinating all of the moving parts, also means bringing us to prayer and admitting that I feel like a failure and I feel inadequate. And our Lord says, you feel inadequate? That's because you are inadequate. And I'm like, yeah, that, okay, that's why I feel inadequate. You know, it's like, yeah, but you don't have to be sufficient. You have to depend upon me. And in the process, it ends up being more than just pietism, more than moralizing. He, he shows me that the more I bring to him my own inadequacies, my own failings, my own faults, my own personal struggles, the more he shows me, you know, more often than not, like my mom taught me growing up, that the things that frustrate you the most in other people are the things that you haven't yet dealt with in your own life. And so when I was dealing with my adolescent boys, I had three of them at one time, you know, in the teenage, it was just like, God, they're so willful. They're so arrogant. They're so defiant. <laughs> it's like, okay, I get it. <laughs> I can be that way too. And I think that Jesus wants to show us not that we are willful and arrogant and defiant, but that we need fixing that we're in process, and that the first order of business has to be, Lord, don't use me to make other people saints, but make me a saint.
That's the only antidote to that professionalitis that can really paralyze our interior life and make it all externalism, which then becomes workaholism, and then it becomes burnout, and then it becomes a kind of resentment, a kind of resentment, a kind of sadness, and a kind of anger at the Lord, at the church, at our employer, or whatever else. So in the process of allowing our Lord to make us saints, I think that's the only thing that will also show other people that it's something they want as well. You know, I've been a Catholic now for more than 30 years. I think for the, without, without much exception, I've gone to confession every week at least once. I heard before I entered the church that John Paul did from a man who worked closely with him. And I thought, if, if he does, then who am I to only go once a year? And over the years, my kids have never complained, Dad, we think you go to confession too often. <laughs> I, they're, oh, good. You know, you'll come back a little <laughs> gentler and kinder. kinder. But the, the thing that I want to communicate to you is open yourself up to radical surgery. Open yourself up to more than just you should have given this talk a little differently. You should have prepared a little bit better. You should have given more time after class with the students. And, you know, more than just simply, you, you got to get back home and stop making excuses to stay at work. You know, there really is a sense in which you've got to open your heart to me. You've got to allow me in. You've got to allow me to fill your mind with the truth, but even more, to really fill your heart with love. And only when we feel the merciful love of God do we really have the freedom to say, okay, take out the scalpel and do the surgery. And in the process, you know, to, to shift the metaphor, it isn't always just kind of surgery with our Lord alone in prayer before the Blessed Sacrament with Our Lady or whatever else you have. It's also allowing Him to sculpt you with different chisels, right? That is the different people in your life. You go back to St. Therese and you realize that the one she showed the greatest attention to, the greatest affection for, was the one that she had the greatest struggle with. And this sister thought she was Therese's like closest friend and only when the story of the soul came out, you know, I don't think she ever read it, but I'm not sure, you know, what I was the one who gave her, you know, etc. Allow our Lord to use the people in your life that he's obviously put there that you wouldn't have put there because that's also a crucial way in becoming a saint. Now, you know, obviously I'm preaching to the choir, I'm carrying coals to Newcastle, whatever other expression you want. But I, I know how much I can benefit from people who remind me of the basics. I also know how much I don't benefit from novelties. So I didn't plan to kind of give you anything novel, you know, anything new in the sense of, you know, an innovation. I think it's always the case that we're just getting back to the basics. And the most basic thing, of course, is the cross that we have to carry each day. But in the process, I do want to come back to this idea of study. Find the people whose writings light a fire in your heart. Find the people who write in such a way as to just make the Bible luminous. Don't read them instead of the Bible read them in order to get more out of the Bible. And so I would say, in my case, it's always been Ratzinger. 
For almost four and a half years before I became a Catholic, I stumbled upon his writings in a used bookstore. Got a book of his for a dime. I read it, I was just, I was on fire. And so I found another, and then another, and another. And then I found out that he was the Grand Inquisitor. That he was the, 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 the Panzer Cardinal, as Time Magazine called him. So I thought, I should be scared of this guy, you know, but I wasn't. He just made scripture come alive like the early church fathers could do for me. And there have been others as well. St. Jose Maria is sort of a, a writer for me that has been like a, a father, but also a scalpel. Uh, but I would really encourage you to, you know, go back and sort of open yourself up to what it was that God used to mentor you, the people, but also the things they read. I was just with Ralph Martin last weekend, and you know we've been friends for more than 30 years, and it was so cool to connect with him because reading him and then meeting him way back was for me like he's somebody I want as a friend. And for whatever reason, he just opened up to that, and we were back together again. It had been months, but it was like days instead. Reading Ralph Martin for me is another person you know, he gives us much more of a prophetic insight into where we are in the 21st century, where the church is headed in the third millennium. And it's a challenging sort of thing that he gives to me, and he gave to over 700 men at the men's conference last Saturday in Arlington, too. You have other writers, but I would encourage you to read, but I would always say begin with the scriptures and then end with the scriptures. Begin with the gospels especially. Really look for the face of Jesus you know, and listen for the things that, not just that you've heard a bunch before, but listen for the things that just strike you as strange. What do I mean? I think that, you know what it's like to say something stupid? I mean, we all know that experience, right? When you say something and it just comes out sideways and you're like, I, got, I wish I could pull it back, you know? Other times you say something that is not stupid, but people think it is, right? And you're just like, are you serious? You don't get that? You know, and you can't really say that. You just kind of have to move on. What I have found is one of the most profitable exercises in my reading of the Gospels is look at all the times that Jesus says something stupid. You know, going through a crowd, who touched me? And the disciples are like, that's so stupid, you know? <laughs> It would be much easier to answer the question, who didn't touch you? Because everybody's touching you. Why would you even ask? Because I felt power go forth. And she knew exactly who he was talking about. So trembling, she comes forward. And as soon as she did, everybody realized what a mistake our Lord made. Because that woman had been hemorrhaging for 12 years, and according to the law of Moses, she had not only defiled Jesus by touching the hem of his garment, but everybody else she rubbed shoulders with in the crowd. And so the Pharisees were kind of spying on him, like, oops, except she was healed. He wasn't defiled. And so why would he pinpoint her to show that love, mercy, righteousness is now, through Christ, a greater counterforce to sin, to defilement, to all of those things? But where was he going? He was en route to the home of Jairus, whose daughter was sick and at the point of death. Only when he got there... He could hear the wailing because they told him she's dead. And then he has to go and say something else that's just stupid. She's not dead. She's only sleeping. And then the wails become jeers 
as they're mocking him. Stick to theology, rabbi. You know, she's not dead, she's only sleeping. Seriously, Lord? Why would he say that? Why indeed? Because to him, physical death is more like sleep, whereas mortal sin, to snuff out the life of God and the soul, that is death. Not death-like, but much more deadly than when you stop breathing or there are no brain waves. Isn't that stupid? But then what really is dumb is that he goes into the room where this, woman, this girl's corpse is laying. Because it's one thing to touch a hemorrhaging woman, but corpse defilement is the most serious form of mosaic impurity. It takes you a week to overcome that, except for one thing. Instead of the corpse defiling him, he raised her from the dead. And once again, you know, and we could go on. My son, your sins are forgiven. Seriously, you know, they didn't vandalize the roof for that. Why would you say that, Jesus? Especially when you know there are opponents scattered throughout the room. And you know they're seething because no one can forgive sins but God alone. And they don't know that you're the God-man. Except the fact is, the external work is a lesser miracle than the interior healing that comes through forgiveness of sin. And so we realize I'm the paralytic. Sin is what paralyzes me more than any physical ailment might afflict me. And so again and again, we have to listen to our Lord, but not for the pious truisms, the moralisms that we know, but allow him to provoke us to say what I tell my PBS students is the hermeneutical breakthrough for me when it comes to exegesis. It's the holy huh. It's huh? <laughs> Which I think pleases our Lord sometimes more than the gospel or praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. I have no idea what you were just talking about, but it's the word of God. It's inspired. I'm sure it's true. So we'll sit down and listen. You know, that kind of pietism, I think, often prevents us from moving into intimacy and friendship and admitting to ourselves, to our Lord, and then to others that we encounter all kinds of things like, let the dead bury the dead. Well, that's just plain rude. You know, and you can multiply examples because we have put in these, you know, these, these eye covers, we, we have these pious filters, and we don't allow ourselves to really hear the scriptures in a way that was as provocative then as it, as it should be now. And so I want to say, find the people who kind of illuminate those passages and at the same time make the connections between you and our Lord so that you can hear him speaking to you. You can hear him saying, you touched me. And at the same time, my son, your sins are forgiven. Rise, take up your pallet and walk as well. This is why you're here to be renewed, to be reinvigorated, not just to be taught. So this is why I made a choice not to give you the talk that I have on the new evangelization that the book is based upon, but to really share from my own experience and at the same time be relatively vulnerable because nothing has been more fulfilling for me than spiritual fathering, and nothing has been harder or more frustrating. And I suspect we could probably get an amen from just about every person here when it comes to mothering or fathering, when it comes to brothering or sistering. But think about what it is we're called upon to do. What in life is more exciting than this? I mean, to think that we get paid? You've gotta be kidding. I would pay to do what I get to do, but you know, you've gotta feed the family. 
But I just want to conclude by saying, allow our Lord to get close to you. And then also connect with other people. It's risky, but it's more risky not to do that for safety's sake than it is to really allow yourself to, to, get, to get messed up with other people, you know. Um, there was one other thing I just looked down and I saw in my notes, and that is, uh, this is awkward, but I want to say it, even if it might stir up some trouble. I would really incur, you know, Jesus sent them out two by two, but it wasn't man and woman. It was man and man. There were also women in his company. But in the last five years, especially, but in the last 25 years also, I have experienced from former students and from friends and colleagues, you know, the, the, the downward tug of the flesh. Guard your heart. And especially if you're married. And especially if you have to work with people of the opposite sex who are on fire, who are excited. You know, guard your heart you know, and watch over it with great vigilance because that marriage that you have, you know, or the virginity that you've consecrated, whatever it is, is a, such a precious gift. And so I, I looked down and I, I wanted to check that off my list as well as some of these other items. Let's conclude in prayer in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Almighty God, our Father in heaven, we thank you for making us your family. We thank you for the gift of Jesus, your eternal Son, our Savior, our King, and a best friend beyond belief. Increase our faith. Strengthen the bond of friendship. Deepen our devotion. And at the same time, bless these, your beloved sons and daughters, this day, this weekend, and send them forth renewed and empowered by the grace and mercy of the Spirit. Help us, lead us, and hear us as we pray that family prayer Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary. Full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. John Bosco, in the name of the Father, and the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you very much. Faith and Reason Podcasts. New media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.